We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And today we are talking about the new ABC sitcom, Abbott Elementary. We are blessed to be joined by a a good friend, fellow classmate in the Leadership Metro Richmond program here in Richmond, Virginia, Dr. Holly Freeman. Dr. Freeman has worked in the field of education for more than 30 years. She's a national board certified teacher and has worked as an elementary teacher, district math coach, national mathematics trainer, educational researcher, curriculum writer and professor, and currently she serves as the executive director of the Math Science Innovation Center in Richmond, Virginia, a really, really cool organization. We're excited to have her on and to uh, be able to talk about her work and um, and her feelings about this uh, very relevant show. Hi, Holly. How are you? I'm doing Welcome well. to the pod. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be on the pod. Great to have you. Thanks for coming on. Um, so, Jesse, before we... Um, Uh, start a conversation with Holly. You want to tell us a little bit about Abbott Elementary? Sure. Abbott Elementary is a relatively new show. It it was a mid-season premiere on ABC and on Hulu. Uh, And uh, there are only about uh, a handful of episodes so far. Um, And Abbott is uh, in uh, an urban elementary school. And um, the show talks about the challenges of the public school system. Uh, it is created by Quinta Brunson, uh, who is also the star, stars as Janine. And she is a bubbly, enthusiastic, uh, energetic, uh, optimistic second grade teacher. And it uh, focuses on the balance between her uh, and uh, the veteran teachers, uh, both uh, Lisa and Walter, who plays Melissa, um, as well as uh, Cheryl Lee Ralph, who, who is brilliant as Barbara, who's the veteran teacher, who basically says, You're, you think you know how it is. This is really how it is. How it is. And then really the, the balance between that and uh, Ava, played by Janelle James, who, who is the principal who seems, which I, you know, Holly, I love your take on this, really, as the administrator, less concerned about the students than the teachers they themselves are. You have Tyler James Williams, uh, who you know him maybe from The Walking Dead or really from Everybody Hates Chris fame, uh, all grown up now, who plays a substitute teacher. And what role does substitute teachers or those who, who are uh, long-term subs filling in for maternity leave or something like that, play in educating our, our students. And then, uh, of course, you have uh, uh, Jacob, played play by Chris Perfetti, who's who's the, the, the token white teacher in, in an urban school um, who, who, who's trying to fit in and navigate that. Uh, 
I think there are elements of these young teachers referencing a sort of teach for America type of teacher who come in thinking they're going to change the world uh, and coming from a place of privilege. And then they're, they're really checked and put in their place right away. This, the show comes from a great line of mockumentary sitcoms, the, uh, you know, the sort of Parks and Rec office sort of mentality, but I think it brings a different level uh, than, than those do because it's not just about the humor. It's really trying to teach us something differently about the challenge with education and public school systems uh, as a whole. Uh, I, I'm interested in both of your thoughts. Yeah, so I've, I've really been enjoying the show and, and before we really dig into the show and the themes that it, um, that it that represents, I wanted to uh, just uh, ask you, Holly, if you could share with us um, and our listeners uh, a, a little bit about your background, a little bit about your journey and um, and your experience as an educator. Yeah, so I'll um, I'll say that um, born and raised in Richmond, and I went to um, suburban and urban uh, schools. And uh, my high school was open high school, which is a small kind of eclectic uh, school. And through the through open high school, I was a student at the math and science center. And so I got a lot of um, I got a lot of uh, experiences through the math and science center that I may not have have other have had otherwise in you know my regular public school. Um, I left Richmond to be a doctor <laughs> to go to New York City. Um, one of the things that we did at the math and science center when I was in high school in the '80s was we went to VCU and did all these kind of experiments and labs. And I really became interested in in science and math and medicine. So I went off to Columbia University to be a doctor, and. After my third year of taking all the hard courses, I was like, I want to be a teacher. And I think there's a point in the, uh, in the, um, the, in the sitcom in Abbott Elementary where the teacher says, um, um, Ava, no, not Ava, she doesn't say it. It was um, Barbara Howard, the older teacher. She says, uh, teachers do it all. It's a calling, you answered. And I really felt like teaching was a calling for me. Um, I really had to sit and meditate around why I wanted to be a medical doctor, um, what was that about? Um, and through some soul searching that was quite spiritual in nature, I decided to become a teacher. And so I ended up taking classes at Barnard across the street. And then I just kind of uh, continued to, um, to pursue my educational studies. I taught in New York City for 12 years, um, all urban schools. I chose urban progressive schools. Um, and progressive meaning um, teacher run, high family engagement, or the um, one of the goals was high family engagement, still in under-resourced communities, black and brown students, um, diverse students, but mainly black and brown students, um, and, and schools in which we really look closely at students in their wholeness, right? Not from a deficit model, but students in their wholeness. So I chose to work in those kind of schools. So I went to the Westside Community School, and then I switched to the Muscoda New School in Washington Heights, where the, um, where the population changed from mostly black and white students to mostly Dominican students with some white and black students and some other nationalities um, in there. And, um, and so after that, I moved to Boston and did all the kind of curriculum writing, um, helping with curriculum development, um, working in universities, um, coaching. I travel all over the country, uh, got my natural board certification, all of that stuff. 
um, helped to run the Boston Teacher Residency, which I want to talk about around uh, mentoring. And uh, and then one day I just had another moment where I just <laughs> the way I tell the story is that there was a window uh, closing, and I knew that I that's that I was being called again. And if I didn't uh, answer the call, that my life would be changed forever. And so I just left my my house, and and I was living in a pretty affluent. Uh, suburban neighborhood. My daughter was 12 at the time. Um, and I just left and came back home to Virginia and then ended up at the job at the math and science center where I had um, attended as a student. Um, so that's kind of the long and um, in short of the um, of my educational journey. I want to say like within the, um, the schools and the experiences that I chose for myself, those experiences led me to become very familiar with schools, very much like the school that is presented at Abbott Elementary. And I traveled to Mississippi. I've traveled, I traveled really all over the country visiting schools and also right here in Richmond. Um, when I was working with the Richmond Public Schools and VCU helping teachers to become national board certified, I was able to get a firsthand look um, at the schools and also having classes for teachers and, and, um, and hearing the resource needs that teachers have um, in our rural, suburban, and urban schools. So that's kind of the the, the total, the big picture of kind of what landed me here. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the Math Science Innovation Center? Yeah. So the Math Science Innovation Center was started in 1966 by uh, area superintendents that they each wanted a math and science um, kind of offshoot for their schools, a way to provide enrichment for students, but they couldn't afford it individually. So they wrote a grant to the National Science Foundation. Um, they got this one-year grant to pool their resources to create a center. And um, and then 54 years later, it, still, it was still up and, up and running. And with uh, at, the, at its prime, it had 12 school divisions, ranged from urban, rural, and suburban um, involved in this enterprise. Um, and the math, the math Science Innovation Center provides STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics programming K-12 for students and teachers. We would go have uh, staff from the Math Science Center go out to schools to provide um, lessons, experiences for students, and then students would also, and teachers would come to the Math Science Center um, for, for additional kind of STEM experiences, and it ran uh, or runs 12 months out of the year at after school programs with the um, with the economic uh, challenges um, that schools are facing the math science center faced that as well because we are a line item on each school's budget and so when you have school systems that have dilapidated schools or they need more school buses or you need more uh, teachers for students who speak Spanish because we have an influx of Spanish-speaking students or you need more nurses because of the pandemic then monies have to get cut somewhere. There's only so much money. And so the Math Science Center has experienced some challenges around um, of being able to support um, itself through financial resources. And so um, the, right, right now we're, we're also, I should say, able to provide virtual classes. And so, but this comes into the pedagogy, which is part of what the uh, program is talking about too, that I as a leader, when the pandemic started and even now, um, I just couldn't um, reconcile with myself to have even more virtual classes for students sure. when they're sitting in front of their computer already anyway. And I really try, like we have, um, I reworked a whole lesson with formerly living bats, like real bats. Um, 
to do it in a way where folks, parents came to pick up the bags, then we did a little bit on the computer and then they went home and did a whole thing and then they brought the bags back. So I was really trying to provide instruction or curriculum in a way that made it make sense for me in terms of how much computer time kids were getting. Um, and I just was having a hard time with that. And so pedagogically, um, there is some work that can be done virtually, but really you need to be sitting in front of students and looking at them face to face and looking at their body language and having some, for me, this is what I think, having a different kind of relationship than you do on a computer screen. So the Math Science Innovation Center has been using this time to really think about what's the planning gonna be for the future. Um, and, and what does the future look like, right? Like every day is a new day. Um, so that's that's how the Math Science Center is trying to weather this kind of pandemic storm as well as the resource um, storm in a way that still stays true to, to hands-on instruction, kids being constructivist, kids being creative, kids working side by side from lots of different um, social um, strata, lots of different um, levels of experience, um, language, right? And so you have to be with people to have those kinds of experiences. Sure. Um, so that's so that's kind of where we that's where we are now. We're trying to just kind of figure that out. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering. Um, you know, you talked about the challenge of doing things virtually and the need to be in person. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk more about the importance of what those and where those in person experiences uh, take place. You know, something that Mike and I talk a lot about is buildings, right? And the, the especially when we were virtual for, for so long during this pandemic, spend so much time thinking about sacred space uh, within our synagogues. And the truth is that we can find God anywhere. We can pray everywhere, right? That, that we, we spend so much time focusing on the upkeep of our institutions, but uh, we can create, at least for us, spiritual community anywhere. And yet I'm wondering the importance of infrastructure, right? That, that uh, in order to educate our kids, the second episode of Avid Elementary, it was a joke, but one flickering light bulb, this optimistic teacher, Janine, tried to fix that light bulb. She realized that everything was, you know, staying together with bubble gum and duct tape and it shut, the, the entire power grid went off as a result. The fuse box blew, how the lack of infrastructure uh, and infrastructure investment impacts the the challenges of education for these children. Yeah, so that's a great question. So you remember that um, when the pandemic started, many students didn't have a laptop. Never mind like adequate supplies, but they didn't they didn't even have a laptop with which to do the the virtual learning. Or, um, or a lot of them, or a lot of them, high speed internet access too. Correct. Exactly, yeah. and that's still a problem. Yeah. Right. And so, and teachers, which Abbott Elementary talks about a lot, um, teachers didn't have the, um, some teachers didn't have the wherewithal to be able to access technology in a way that would still be engaging for students. And so, so the infrastructure is around physical resources, but it's also around personnel resources, right? So how do you very quickly get the teachers to develop a new skill and teach in a different way and you know all of this. And so I think the infrastructure is um, very important. And it was also ironic, um, if y'all remember, that at some point, 
like it just happened, right? Like everybody got a computer. And it was like, why didn't everybody have a computer before? Like, why did this have to happen in order for the resources to become apparent or become accessible? Right. Um, so I think that the infrastructure question is important. And I also want to say like pedagogically, um, even if you have the infrastructure, even if you have the people who know how to teach, we're just going to use virtual in this at this uh, for right now. Even if you know, if you have the people who know how to teach virtually, you have the high speed internet, you have the computer resources, you have all the like the light, and you have like all the things. Um, I still think that there's something about having an in person experience um, that supports students learning. Um, a lot of what um, Miss Barbara does is she'll like look at the kids and they'll like straighten up or um, or the kid comes in with the paper to give to Jacob, uh, not to, to give to Gregory, Mr. Eddie, right? The kid comes in, I drew a picture of you, you know, in front of the Eiffel Tower or whatever. And so you can't really have those experiences if you're virtual. So there's something about, um, finding a way to blend the two. I don't know what the pandemic's gonna hold for us and what education's gonna look like, but a way to, um, to blend the two. And the last thing I'll say about, not the last thing I'll say about this, but I, in my spare time, I work with kids at the Cultural Roots Homeschool Co-op. And we are, we try to be in person as much as possible, but sometimes we have to be virtual because like there was a COVID scare or something. And, um, so I'm sitting there and I'm a pretty engaging instructor. We're reading like some engaging stuff. Um, I teach a book study class. And, but when it's virtual, I'm like, hey, can I see your face for a minute? Cause just to talk to like a, a black square is like, is not, for me, it's not pedagogically the way I wanna teach. So I'm like, hey, so-and-so like, can I just see your face for a minute or whatever, right? And so, and the kids also wanna be in person. So when we're like, we're in person, they're like, yay, we're in person. Um, even though it's very hard to teach with a mask on, um, it's, I just think there's something to, um, yes, having infrastructure, but there's also something to having the, the space, creating the space to be present with each other. Sure. Right. Uh, you know, what, what you're, what you're bringing up for me, in addition to all of that is, and these are some of the themes that are, I think, reflected in the show too, that, um, that our public schools in particular, especially in, in cities uh, like, like ours, um, are, you know, the, uh, are primary avenues for direct services to a lot of uh, kids who are um, uh, underprivileged, uh, who you know, uh, may come from uh, more impoverished backgrounds, who don't have access to you know, healthy food, uh, hot meals, um, you know, so, so, you know, the, the, uh, pandemic was particularly difficult because, you know, um, it, it, in addition to the technological issues, right. Um, you know, for a lot of kids, home may not be, um, a safe environment for them. Home may not be a place where they can, um, uh, actually, you know, have a meal and, and then, you know, are forced to do all of their, you know, however many hours of virtual learning on an empty stomach, right. It's, it, you know, all these compounding challenges. And in addition to it, you know, we're, um, uh, it was just another example of how, you know, I, I had this reaction when you mentioned uh, when um, uh, 
when Barbara, the veteran kindergarten teacher, says to Janine in the show, um, you know, uh, this is a calling, this isn't a job, this is a calling, and you answered the call. And I, I had a strong reaction to it because um, as a rabbi, which is sort of like, you know, uh, can, related to a teaching profession, I, I understand that. Um, but it also, I think, uh, often becomes um, a, an excuse in our culture for um, for undervaluing the work that teachers do, underpaying teachers, um, and, and expecting them to do as much as possible with as little as possible, which is, you know, I, I saw teachers doing heroic things on virtual learning that they were that they never got the training or the resources to be able to do properly. Um, yeah. But yet, you know, here they were doing yeah. it um, without really much reward. And society says, well, you should do it without reward or what do you want to applause? Like, this is your calling. And, you know, to say that, like, they could say, yes, it is my calling, but I also should be, you know, adequately trained, fairly compensated and you know, properly appreciated. Absolutely. That is such a good point. And, and the way that nurses, um, I've had a lot of experience in hospitals recently and I'm like, damn, oh, I'm like, sorry. You can say that. I'm you like, can say that. That's all good. Okay. I'm like, nurses are this the real- This is a family career. podcast. I, know, I, like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I keep saying like, nurses are the real superheroes. And then I'm also like, and teachers are the real super, like, and, and the, like all the, the, the frontline workers and all that stuff. Um, what, uh, what resonates with me with what you said, Michael, was that, um, Barbara Howard. Um, so there, so this whole thing about, you know, baby boomers and millennials and, you know, that kind of thing. And the show is about kind of that chasm between the two age groups of people, so to speak, because Melissa's also in that kind of older age group. Um, and she's probably a Gen uh, Xer if I had to. She's probably a Gen Xer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's not like a, you know, yeah, yeah. She's, she's like sort of character. in the middle. She's like, she doesn't have this. Oh my same, gosh, sort of, I love her yeah. character. She's so good. Um, so there's you know, some, the same sort of like nose to the grindstone attitude right. uh, that like, Barbara right. does, but she's not as, you know, wide-eyed and optimistic yeah. as Janine is. Yeah. yeah. But I put them kind of in the same category because they're just like, we're just going to get it done. Like, this is how, and then the other teachers, or especially Janine, is like, hey, there's a different way to do it. Like, let's change our own clock. Let's not just, you know, say like, oh, it's never going to happen. Let's like do it ourselves. And so um, I think there's a, there is a, especially for people of color, I think, or I'm just going to say like black teachers, I think um, there's something about the tradition of, you know, the, the one room schoolhouse and you have like the black teacher and she's teaching the kids. She's like, we're just going to make it work. Like that's how it is. And that, you know, you could become a nurse or a teacher and you just kind of did it because it was your calling as you mentioned Michael and so I think that now there are people entering the profession that are like I could do other stuff and I'm choosing to do this and I know my value I know my worth and I should get compensated and I think that's driving a lot of the conversations about teacher uh, pay raise and all pay and all that um I did a whole wrote a whole chapter on millennials millennial teachers of color mm. a book that was published and I interviewed a bunch of millennials just about their experiences in schools, um, and these are black black millennials, so um, or millennials who happen to be black people, and um, and so they were talking a lot about the fact that they often wonder how their older teacher counterparts think about them because they come in, they're like, I used to be an engineer, and I decided to become a teacher because I have this um, desire to uplift other students in this way, and then you have the older teacher who was kind of and they're they're wondering like how's the older teacher experiencing me 
and then vice versa, how is a younger teacher experience an older teacher? And so I think that's a great relationship that they're developing on Abbott Elementary between Janine and Barbara. Um, I think Janine says at one point, I just want her to like want me to help her or something, right? I just want her and like maybe she fails and she has to ask me and I, you know, I want her to. Um, and then at one point, Barbara does, you know, want help from Janine. And so I think that relationship about the, the, the groups of people and what their mindset is around the work that they do is really interesting. And I think that it, it um, I think it's, I think it's true. I think it's, um, I know it's a satire and all that stuff, but I think that that millennial and kind of like older teacher chasm again is, um, is really interesting. Mike, you, you mentioned how, how schools are also be- become a, a resource for the children outside of their school day, um, right? There's that scene where the whole idea of getting new rugs for the class was because Janine ha- has, has a student who, who is napping in the class uh, d- during recess or during lunch every day oh um, and, and how it, for many students, the, the teacher acts as an additional parental figure. Um, in some cases, uh, the the only present parental figure because of, of the challenges of that family and parents working hard to support their children. Um, and I, I think that that is something that is really important to note as well, the role that the parent, uh, I'm sorry, that the teacher plays, uh, not just for the child, what's going on in the classroom and educating the child, but the relationship to that the child, to, to their whole self, into what's going on outside of the classroom and trying to navigate that. Oh my God, Jesse, the rug thing is a big deal. Like <laughs> the rug is life in an elementary classroom. And for all the reasons you just mentioned, and it creates a space for kids to, to be in community, right? And so sitting like back of head to back of head is not really a way to to have conversations about what's happening during the school day or about the content of the work they're doing. But that rug, when you're sitting around that square or circle rug and you're looking at the other people, um, it really gives you a sense of like, we're a community in a way that other um, configurations of physical resources don't. And um, the rug is like, like, my myself and my teacher friends would go to Home Depot when we were going to Home Depot. We would go to Home Depot and like buy rugs because you, you got to have a rug. Um, <laughs> so the rug, I just love, I was like, oh my God, the rug thing was um, critical. And the other thing I want to say from what you said, Jesse, is that I, but I, I've always worked in under-resourced schools. And I'm saying under-resourced because they were in neighborhoods that did not have the most resources, but the impetus for the school was to um, increase parental involvement and build a you know core community. And um, as a matter of fact, one of my students from 30 years ago just came to Virginia like last week. I, I keep in touch with all my friends, my, my friends, my former students, because we have such a strong community. The thing I want to say, though, is that seeing where the mom was dropping her kid off an hour late, yeah. and then Mr. Eddie was like, they were all complaining like that the kid was coming late because he was missing valuable instructional time. And then this is why you need the Barbara Howards of the world. She was like, yo, you need to go talk to the lady. And mm-hmm. so she set it all up. Um, so the whole like institutional historical knowledge, the way of being in the world, you need the veteran teachers to be able to help with that. 
And I fundamentally believe that families want kids to succeed. You could have the most like recalcitrant parent that you think is recalcitrant, all of that. And they don't want their kids. They don't care. They don't care. I don't believe that. I feel like I, I know in my soul, like families, parents want their kids to do well, but they don't sometimes know how to access that or know how to like organize their life to better support their kid. And so when Mr. Eddie was like, yeah, like he needs to come to school. She was like, well, it's going to make me like a whole hour or whatever early for work. And I don't know. He was like, yeah, but he's got to come. And she was like, okay. And then the kid comes, right. like she gets the kid there on time. And so I think that a lot of times we give up on parents and it's hard because parents are, do, are managing and struggling and all of that. Some parents are. Um, we I make assumptions, we right? We made assumptions that the parent was not invested in their child. Exactly. That the parent what was, uh, you know, neglecting their child. Exactly. But the mother had a very valid reason of trying to balance scheduling and, and, and work exactly. and school and all of that. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Well, you know, sort of, I mean, like, you know, that, that was a really interesting uh, example because um, she, on the one hand, had, um, you know, uh, uh, thought through a logic of why she wasn't bringing uh, her child to school on time, but it was also rooted in a, um, in a misunderstanding or a lack of awareness about, you know, what they were actually doing in school. And, and what, what that pointed to me was, you know, I hear a lot of people, you know, now, especially as a, the parent of, of two children who are in uh, Richmond City public schools, you know, I hear a lot of other parents talking about, you know, uh, good schools and bad schools. It, it, it's always surprising, well, not surprising to me. Um, it's always noteworthy to me that, um, that, that good schools tend to, the quote unquote good school tends to align with um, uh, neighborhoods that are predominantly white and, uh, and, and, uh, higher on the socioeconomic uh, scale um, and that bad schools correlate to, uh, you know, areas that are uh, pre predominantly uh, black and people of color um, and, and lower socioeconomic scale. But one of the things that, um, that, you know, like the, the actual, like it, the people, the, the, um, the, uh, the capabilities of the students in those schools, the performance of the students of the, of the students in the schools is 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 uh, in large part not uh, a function of the quality of the instruction of the schools or the management of the schools. Um, often it is the additional support and resources that they're getting outside of school or, or don't have access to outside of the schools. Exactly. Schools, right. So it, it's it's um so the you know the show I think really does a good job of of showing that this is, you know, the school that they're in is a quote unquote failing school. It's, it's impoverished, whatever. Right. But the teachers are, are great teachers. They're, right. interested, they're committed. The students are, are bright and just as much as any other school. And so what's missing then, right. What's missing right. are the, are the social structures that give those kids um, the same advantages that, you know, kids in a different school right. district in Philadelphia would have. And that's a whole um, argument in some cities about property taxes, right? And like how are property taxes used right. and all that good stuff. And, um, you know, there was um, there was a school that we were working with south of Richmond and the math science people, teachers came back and they were like, the kids can't do this, the kids can't do this. And I was like, whoa, yo, stop. Like the the whole mindset has to change about like, let, like you have to be able to point out what kids 
need to know how to do. And I'm saying that in terms of like thinking, not just like you need to know like some date, but like how do kids need to learn how to think in ways that will help them succeed. But you can't, your language can't be the kids can't, right? It has to be like, I'm trying to help the kids do this thing and they're not there yet. So now what do I, which is what you're saying, Michael, like, what do I need to do to get the students there? The teacher can't do this thing yet. So what do I need to do to get the teacher to like, to make that, um, that leap? So I think like the mindset thing has to change um, because there's a lot of strong teaching happening, but it's just like people are, and my, um, Jesse, to go back to you, like people are like, have this self, like this notion of like, stuff is bad or like people don't care or people just getting a paycheck or whatever, but people are really working hard um, and then need some um, like targeted interventions, targeted support, targeted like uh, experiences to keep moving forward, you know, toward the goal. But, you know, I, I wonder, you know, there are societal challenges, right? And Mike, I wonder if this is what, what you were getting at. I would not have gotten into college if, my parents have, and this is all about privilege, uh, were not able to budget $75 an hour for eight months prior to me taking the SATs for an SAT tutor. Right. You know, and it had nothing to do with my grades or how hard I worked. There's a certain type of standardized test that at least at the time, every college required. um, And if you had privilege, you were able to get extra help in preparing, not what you knew, didn't matter what you knew. I don't remember half of these SAT words that I had to memorize for this damn test, but I, I, I had the opportunity to work with somebody just to focus on that for entry. You know, one of the slivers of light, truthfully, I think about the pandemic is the way universities have shifted requirements for admission that something like that, the standardization of exams uh, is now optional because it doesn't show the full picture. It doesn't show the full students. Right, absolutely. And then to go down a level with that, Jesse, when I was teaching in New York City, there was some test that the kids had to have, I don't know, second grade. And like the word was like sofa or couch. It was like one of them. And the kids, like I taught in like a whatever part of town and the kids, I like, didn't know the word they were using on the paper. Like I forgot, it was either sofa or couch. Like they would call it a couch, but on the paper it was sofa. And because they didn't know the word sofa, it was like, you get a big old X. If you have enough of those X's on your paper, you don't get the, the goodie, you don't get the thing. Um, even though you know what a sofa does, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like all the way back to when kids are entering school, like the words that we're using, the way that we are like, have a very finite way of teaching instead of having a teaching where you're saying like, hey, you call it a couch, I call it a sofa. It's the same thing, you know? Um, I would use like the words like eggplant in my math lessons because like the Dominicans kids didn't know what eggplant was or whatever the word was I was using, right? But I was like, and this is what it does and this is where it is at the store and like whatever because like you just have to have give kids experiences rather than just saying like what they don't know. Like how can I help broaden like experience and honor the experiences that they do have I, right I personally mean, like, yeah oh sorry i didn't mean to drop you that off. was done oh i i personally i was just gonna make a joke that I, I personally would, would love to live in a world uh, it, uh where where people didn't know what eggplant was um <laughs> no, it's kind of gross but, <laughs> but I, I you know I, I as you're as you're talking i keep on reflecting about the fact that in you know jewish tradition um and uh you know 
it's 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 almost a cliche that uh, that Jewish tradition and Jewish communities um, prioritize and, and value education. It's historically been true. It's it's present in, in tradition that I mean, it's often uh, framed as uh, Jewish education, religious education, studying Torah. But I think that that has translated historically to uh, a prioritization of education as a means of um, of, of uh, ad advancement and, um, and, and success, um, you know, so much so that, you know, when, uh, if a new Jewish community is, uh, is being founded somewhere, um, the first thing that they're supposed to establish is a mikvah, a ritual bath, but the second thing is a school. And all of that, I think, lends itself to this. The, the, the synagogue where I served, by the way, was a school first before it became also um, a synagogue. Right. So, you know, so what that points to, because when Judaism says that something is a high priority, um, that it's a responsibility, that, that it means that it's a, a, a communal responsibility, right? So, um, you know, I, I think that we haven't quite um, uh, embraced that in this country as a society that, that schools, you know, we call them public schools because they're supposed to be a public investment. Um, they're, they're supposed to be a, a, a service to the entire public um, uh, equally. And yet, um, uh, you know, periodically, you know, it gets that at least lip service, it gets uh, that it's in the conversation, um, but, we, but we haven't yet uh, in, you know, at least in, in this city, or as I see around the country, we haven't yet um, really invested in education um, as a communal responsibility that everybody um, in the community should be able should first have responsibility to contribute to, but also equally benefit from. So super interesting. Um, in um, my, I don't even know, in my like grandmother's day, I'll say, um, there were like black community, like schooling was an important part of black schooling and like community was important, right? Like, you know, your neighbor, your neighbor had a um, responsibility to help you raise your kids. Like education was important. Um, people went to segregated schools and people who went to those schools really like were successful. Like they got out a lot out of it and felt safe and all that mm -hmm. stuff. But then when desegregation came and they started busting people all over the place, that's when it got a little crazy. Now I'm not saying like segregated schools are the thing to do, um, but there, there is something about like a community making an investment in its own community. And like, what does that look like? Um, but you see it now in like New York city when they're developing like schools for girls or schools for like black kids or whatever, like there's a lot of pushback because um, I don't know, there's a lot of pushback. I don't know why, but there's a lot of pushback. Um, and so it's interesting, like, I wonder what, I mean, this is kind of crazy to even say, cause I'm not, I'm totally not saying anything about segregated schools, but my whole like reason for being is to uh, have like integrated spaces for people. But there was a different feeling, I think, from listening to my elders about what schooling was like for them, like before and after the segregation integration thing. Um, and even now in Boston, like Charlestown, they, um, it's a, a black school in a, like a, a traditionally white community and people are trying to like gentrify the space and they're like, no, like we want the school to stay. I mean, kids are bust all over the place. I guess I'm just saying that, that in this society, as you just pointed out, like there, there are only small segments of people for whom um, 
like commu like community schooling or let's call it community schooling is available to and i wonder about what would have happened if that notion had stuck for african american folks um and also like the whole um breaking up of the family yeah. for black folks i think has contributed to that you know so i don't know it's like really interesting and this co-op wire work is for bipoc kids um black indigenous people of color and there's a lot of diversity up in there right. like there are like a lot of diversity up in there but it's really focusing on like how do we um accentuate the experiences of bipoc folks and what we read the math that we do the geology that we do all of that and kids are really like getting a lot of it and so are the parents there's there's someone doing like indigenous medicine where do you get to do a class on indigenous medicine yeah um you know so i just wonder about if there were more schools that were similar to jewish schools in that way and uh, so we have a lot to learn from the way that you all that you're i'm not saying I'm not, I don't really want to say yeah. it like this. No, no, no. I, like I, I, I your community. No, your your point is your point is well taken. I think. Listen, you know, we're we're, we're in Richmond, which is the the birthplace of massive resistance to uh, to school integration in, in the 1950s and, and 60s. You know, and so there, so the the move to school integration was because uh, uh, in you know in the pre Brown versus Board of Education era, you know, separate was inherently not equal because right. you had you did have these community schools, but you couldn't have right. um, equal investment in those schools because the resources were coming from within those communities, right? And so, um, so the the desire was to integrate schools because there's strength and diversity, and so that the resources would be shared more equitably. But I, I think that you know what. What happened was, you know, what we're seeing is um, that we got, in some ways, the worst of both worlds um, after the fact, yeah. um, and uh, and and so, you know, a move to more sort of community-based schools um, would be great. It, you know, if every if every community had the resources that many Jewish communities have to invest in their schools, that would be incredible. But not every community does. Right. So I, I live in New Jersey. Um, you know, blue, you know, bright blue state, New Jersey. Um, and New Jersey is the most uh, segregated, has the most segregated school districts in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. we, we are a, a tiny, tiny state, uh, geographically tiny. And um, there are something like 450 different school districts in the entire state. Uh, and, and that's because, you know, I drive one and a half miles that way, one and a half miles that way. And those are different school districts, partially because we're densely populated. But when I was in Florida, uh, I was in Duval County, Florida, uh, Jacksonville, a city of 1.1 million, and the entire county was a single school district. Is that good or bad? You could have your own thoughts about Florida right. public schools, but um, it's a very different mentality. And so, well, because of all these different school districts, they're very much community focused. I think uh, what ends up happening is the investment in them is based on exactly what you said, is based on your property taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so uh, based on how much you could afford uh, dictates how much uh, right. of that focus the community has on education. Right. Yeah. So let me, I know we're, I don't know, I don't know what you're all about to say, but I want to say <laughs> two things. One is about agency and one is about popular culture in terms of how the show is thinking about that. Can I just jump on that real quick? Please. Yeah, please. So the popular culture, Jamie, um, 
at one point, um, Janine says to Barbara, like she says some initials and Barbara's like, I don't know what that is. And then Janine's like, I don't know what that is either. And it was like, I was rolling on the floor with that because there are like this, these popular culture references that, um, that when I was doing my research about millennials, they were like, yeah, we get the popular culture references. And like, we, and that helps us gain some kind of trust um, with the students. And so that made me think like, what if you don't know what the blah, 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 blah is, right? Mm -hmm. um, so quick, quick, quick story. I was doing my little book club yesterday and we're reading this book and the one of the kids says, the abuela is sus. And I was like, sus? And I was like, and I was like, I think he means suspect. Let me rock oh, with it. Come on, yeah. I know, like who you, I've never had, that was my first time ever using the word sus. He was like, the abuela is sus. And I was like, it took me like a minute, not a minute, but it took me a second. And I was like, who else is sus? And we had, we made this whole diagram about like which characters were sus in terms of like the missing animals <laughs> and which ones were like not in the ballpark. And I was just like that. And so when I saw that on the show, I was like, yes, like there's this whole popular culture thing that provides some kind of ease um, in when you're working with students. And I wonder like if you don't, which is something, which might be like the Jacob piece in the, in the um, story. If you don't get it. You, you don't get it, then like, then what happens, right? Like you don't have to be the same ethnicity or culture or experience of students to get it or to have relationship, be in relationship with them. But if you really, don't get it, whatever that it is, like, what does that mean for how you, how long it takes for you to develop relationship and trust? Because half of teaching is capturing the kid's heart, right? Um, and showing you care about them and all that good stuff. So I just like the popular culture references in the show, I think are really, um, I think that's a really interesting thing to think about um, in terms of like who is, who is teaching the kids. Um, and the other quick thing is about agency, right? So I'm thinking about as I'm watching the show, like what does agency look like for each of the characters, right? So Melissa, who's from like South Philly, um, and she's like, I know a person who can whatever, and she got them all the rugs and all that, right? And so what does agency look like for each of the people given their experience and how they are able to uh, like access their experiences in order to make something happen, right? Mm -hmm. Even the, the guy, the custodian who's like doing the thing with the lights and stuff, right? He's like, I'm glad I knew how the things were done or whatever. So how do people use their agency in different ways, depending on like who they are? I was thinking a lot about that. I think that's great. That's that's yeah. a very important food for thought. And, yeah. Uh, the, and, and just as an aside, uh, the custodian, Mr. Johnson, played by it's William Stanford Davis, I think so far has been the absolute highlight of the show. I think he has all the best lines. <laughs> Um, which like, tracks, I mean, like the, the, custodial, the custodial staff and all the schools that I've ever been to were always the most interesting. And, and oh my funny. God, you gotta like have, you gotta be with the custodian. And then Jesse, you mentioned the principal. I think the principal is a total trope. Like I have never at, at any point seen a principal anywhere near that character. I think it's like total comic relief. Um, maybe, maybe. Yeah. In my experience, like I sure. just, I, yeah. Um, Right, even he's even Mr. Belding, even Mr. Belding was a talented and dedicated educator. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how that character plays out. Um, but yeah, I'm just like, wow, like that one. The other ones, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that one, that character, I'm like, wow, that's really far away from you know my own experience. So it'll be interesting <laughs> to see how she how she how they develop that character.
All right. Well, um, we hope that uh, that everybody will check out Abbott Elementary and, and Holly. It's been such a great opportunity to uh, to chat with you and hear your thoughts about about the show and about um, the, the the field of education and the challenges and opportunities that are present. You know, uh, hopefully there'll be a season two of Abbott Elementary. If there is, maybe you'll come back and I will. Uh, as a friend of the pod and uh, and and discuss with us again. Excellent, excellent. Well I'm then, I'm a friend of the pod. I like it. I like it. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button. Bet. You know what? I've already listened to a couple of y'all episodes, so okay. All right. Until next time, I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Take care, everyone. <laughs>